Yonaguni, Japan, 1986. The ocean is one of the most spiritual forces in the Japanese traditional belief system. In the Shinto cosmogony, the gods of creation brought up the Japanese islands from beneath the sea. In some legends, the dragon god lives in a magnificent palace complex at the bottom of the ocean, and each of the palace's four wings contains a different season. To be clear, many of the world's cultures revered the ocean, but the Japanese, past and present, are one of the few cultures who've taken a good hard look into the great blue and wondered, what exactly is down there? So it's no wonder that deep sea diving is a popular sport in the southern Ryukyu Islands of Japan, widely regarded as some of the most beautiful coastlines in the world. Yonaguni-jima, which is very remote and sparsely populated, is known for its remarkable reefs and hammerhead sharks, which migrate to its waters. These beautiful sharks are typically safe to swim near, and so they're a popular destination for tourists visiting this quiet island. And it was this tourism draw that diving instructor Kihachiro Aratake hoped to make good use of in 1986. The waters off the coast were not widely explored, but Aratake was experienced and hoped to find a good, reliable spot where he could bring his customers to view the sharks. On one diving expedition, instead he found something else. Emerging from the waters was a dark shape, incredibly large and thankfully for Mr. Aratake, not alive. Underneath the surface of the water was what looked to be a pyramid with terraced stone steps and columns. It was 76 meters long, and surrounding it appeared to be other stones and outcroppings that looked man-made. Word got out about the discovery, and a marine geologist from the University of Ryukyu, Masaki Kimuri, traveled down to Yonaguni to investigate the finding for himself. He was perplexed. The object looked as if it had carved angles, cleavage in the stones that suggested human alteration, and even protrusions and depressions that resembled carved language. He concluded that this object had once sat on land, but because of Japan's well-documented seismic activity, an earthquake or some catastrophe had plunged this pyramid and surrounding structures into the ocean centuries ago. And then Kimari made a very bold and controversial claim, that this structure wasn't just a ruin, but the remnant of a sunken continent known as Mu, a predecessor to the lost civilization of Atlantis. Plato's legendary continent had once again risen from the depths to challenge both skeptics and believers. The discourse around Atlantis was brought back to the academic forefront, but this time the progression of technology now presented the world with a new controversial idea that the ruins of Atlantis might actually be found. On the previous episode of Relic, I talked about the history of the lost empire of Atlantis and went into its credibility as a concept. Presuming a city or civilization's matching Plato's description of Atlantis actually existed, then where is it? 
Well, there's a lot of theories and candidates out there, and quite honestly, more than can fit one episode. So in order to make things concise, I'm working off a criteria of at least four or five points. They are that the location must be directly related to a maritime civilization that would have existed in a part of the world known to have been inhabited in Plato's time, so roughly near the Atlantic Ocean or Mediterranean. There needs to be evidence that this place had access to impressive, albeit realistic, technology, or at least something Plato would have deemed notable. The candidate must have been a belligerent or a naval power. The location must be geographically consistent with the mythology, or at least contain the canals or rings mentioned by Plato. The location needed to have been affected or destroyed by a catastrophe or climate disruption. But before we take that plunge in search of Atlantis for real, no half-decent podcast on the subject would be complete without acknowledging a similar historical mystery, that of the Sea Peoples. It's sort of a vague name with an even more ambiguous past. But during the Egyptology boom at the end of the 1800s, a French archaeologist named Emmanuel de Rouguet studied a set of Egyptian reliefs inscribed under the authority of Pharaoh Ramses III. Rouguet's successor, Gaston Maspero, realized that throughout Egypt circa 1276 to 1178 BC, a reoccurring adversary kept popping up in the records of the pharaohs. This mysterious army of invaders was not assigned a name, but their reputation preceded them. According to the records of the Egyptians, they came from the sea in their warships, and none could stand against them. And the nature of these sea peoples has confounded historians because, by all accounts, this maritime power majorly contributed to the decline of the Bronze Age, yet we still don't know who they are. Which sounds a lot like Plato's story of Atlantis, right? Only the dates don't really add up. Atlantis, according to Plato, existed 9,000 years before his time, though some argue that this is actually the result of a faulty translation, with one extra zero tacked onto the end of Plato's proposed numerical quantities all throughout his dialogues. This not only changes the distance of years between Plato and when Atlantis supposedly existed, but also its location, not placed outside the Strait of Gibraltar, but in a body of water a whole lot closer to Athens, a landform also sometimes referred to as the Pillars of Hercules. Suddenly, the Sea People seemed a lot like candidates for the Atlanteans, a naval supremacy who assaulted Egypt and were considered virtually unstoppable. The problem with this admittedly shaky theory is that historians don't quite know who the Sea Peoples were at all, or where they came from. They could have been a race of people from the Mediterranean, a wayward confederation of pirates, lesser tribes of the Aegean Sea, or one of the civilizations of Europe. They were also known to have attacked parts of the Middle East as well. Now, when it comes to placing Atlantis on the map, Plato doesn't exactly give us much to work with. But one of the major landmarks mentioned in his dialogues are those Pillars of Hercules. While commonly believed to be the mountainous outcroppings on the either side of the Strait of Gibraltar, it turns out the ancient Greeks had assigned that name to other places in the Mediterranean. It just depended on who you were talking to. The name refers to the furthest point of the world that Hercules traveled during his twelve labors, though other myths state that the passageway is the end result of the god smashing a mountain in two. The Gulf of Laconia is the southernmost body of water in Greece. Flanked by two large mountains, it was also known as the Pillars of Hercules. This backs the theory stating that Plato's measuring system was the result of a mistranslation, and that he wasn't referring to several thousand leagues west of Greece, but a couple hundred, placing Atlantis within the circumference of the Mediterranean past the Gulf of Laconia and not the Strait of Gibraltar. 
The controversy over Plato's units of measurement also creeps into just how large Atlantis was supposed to be. The legends and myths surrounding the lost civilization over the years have muddled its size. Some say it's a giant city, some a whole island, and of course, an entire sunken continent. This is often due to the fact that Plato called Atlantis greater than both Libya and Asia Minor. Now, this may not have referred to a combined size, but a combined power, i.e. Atlantis's superior military might being great. So in the end, those who hold Atlantis as a now extinct deposed civilization are sometimes divided into two camps. Those that think Atlantis existed a few hundred years before Plato's time, and those who think it existed several thousand years. The latter theory is sort of hard to work with, considering recorded history, and recorded language for that matter, is actually only 5,000 years old. Now Ignatius Donnelly, the Republican congressman at the end of the 1800s who gave rise to the theory of Atlantis as a proto-civilization, is not alone in his thinking. In 2015, speculative historian and author Graham Hancock released a book called Magicians of the Gods. It puts forth the idea that a great civilization 12,000 years ago was destroyed during a worldwide cataclysm. And he points to a hotly debated period of geological unrest called the Younger Dryas period. The Younger Dryas, named after a flower that appeared in mass quantities during this time, was a sudden and not fully understood return to Ice Age conditions sometime in the years 12900 to 11700 BC. Some think it was the result of a change in polar currents creating lower temperatures, and other theorize it was the result of an impact event, such as multiple meteor fragments colliding with the Earth. What is known for sure is that humanity was around during that time period and would have been greatly affected by this sudden climate disruption. According to the Younger Dryas impact theory, the ensuing natural disasters resulted in the extinction of megafauna as well as the decline of the Clovis people, who originally inhabited North America. And also, according to some theorists like Hancock, this event wiped out a civilization that was much more advanced than the hunter-gatherer cultures that we do know existed around that time. But this hypothesis is rather easy to disprove. For one, even a large-scale natural disaster wouldn't have destroyed all of the tools, cookware, and artifacts that should have been left behind. And within the scientific community, the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis is more discredited than it is accepted. No impact craters from that time period have ever been discovered, and with an event that significant, those would have been fairly noticeable. The extinction events from that period of history are usually attributed to the arrival of human migration and hunting rather than any one singular event. Hancock believed that this Younger Dryas event caused the magnetic poles to shift, which resulted in this lost race vanishing under Antarctica, where it presumably remains to this day, and also conveniently explains why we still haven't found it yet. Atlantis being hidden beneath the ice, probably near Hitler's lost bunker or something, is not a new theory, but there isn't any archaeological evidence to substantiate it. Others have pointed to the fact that there are world-ending flood myths in almost every major civilization, which is true. While other more credible scientists have speculated on whether or not an ancient global disaster could have resulted in a shared cultural memory being passed down over time, the problem lies, again, in a lack of evidence. It's hard to reconcile a civilization on the same level as supposedly Atlantis completely vanishing off the face of the earth without a trace, whereas other highly capable civilizations continue to exist long after. 
point blank, hard to make historical assumptions or guesses before the time of written history. So let's flip to the camp that believes Atlantis wasn't 9,000 years before Plato's dialogues, but within the range of 900 to 1,000 years. When we examine this theory, a whole host of more credible candidates appear. An American architect named Robert Samest believes that sea mapping technology has uncovered the possible ruins of Atlantis off the coast of Cyprus. He alleges that sonar images of the Cyprus Basin show presumably man-made underwater structures at a depth of almost 5,000 feet. He also cites the known extinct Cyprus elephant as matching Plato's description of Atlantean fauna. He also references the copper and minerals native to the island, correlating with the precious metals that were supposed to be found on Atlantis. Underwater geologists have disproven these submerged man-made structures as being part of the natural topography, however, not the towers of some ancient city. Now, a more grounded theory, backed by historical evidence, is that Atlantis was a distorted account of the very real, very destroyed Greek coastal city of Heliki. Also known as Dodecopolis, Heliki was an active participant in the Trojan War, was recognized in its time for its military might, and minted its own copper coins. Of other relevance to the Atlantean connection, the people of Heliki worshipped Poseidon as their patron god, and even erected a temple in his honor, a structure that was held in high regard throughout the Greek world. And here's where things get really interesting. In 373 BC, emissaries from Ionia petitioned the rulers of Heliki for a statue or model of Poseidon to take back with them. The leaders either refused or, according to one account, killed the travelers, violating the sacred bonds of hospitality. Not long after this incident, the citizens of Heliki observed unusual natural phenomena. Immense columns of flame came from beneath the earth, and all animal life suddenly fled the city within a 48-hour period. Five days later, the city sank into the water, taking with it ten Spartan ships in the harbor. Despite a rescue attempt, the people of Heliki and their city were swallowed up by the sea, presumably for incurring the wrath of the god Poseidon. 150 years later, a philosopher named Eratosthenes visited the coast and observed the city's bronze statue of Poseidon jutting out of the waters in a nearby gulf. Supposedly, it posed a hazard for boats who risked running into it. Other travelers in that region reported seeing walls of the former city underneath the water, and even Roman tourists mentioned the city's statuary, which could still be seen beneath the surface. But in the following centuries, silt and dirt naturally settled over the ruins, and the city faded into legend. That didn't stop people from looking for it, but it wasn't until 1988 that a Greek archaeologist named Dora Katsinopoulou teamed up with the American Museum of Natural History in a modern attempt to locate the submerged ruins of Heliki. For many years, those who went in search of the city focused their efforts around the Corinthian Gulf, as historical eyewitnesses had previously sighted the ruins there. But Katsinopoulou wondered if the writings referred to an inland body of water instead. In 2001, the remnants of Heliki were uncovered in an old lagoon, buried by earthquake and flood. Presumably, the city was destroyed by a sinkhole or natural subsistence in the earth. Katsinopoulos believed that Plato, who wrote the dialogues within 30 years of Heliki's destruction, took inspiration from the city, which was widely known to the philosophers. Other hypotheses put Atlantis within the range of the Mediterranean, 
and these usually revolve around the idea that the sea level thousands of years ago was a lot lower until it suddenly rose dramatically within a short time period, thereby wiping out any civilizations that existed beneath the sea level. The problem with that line of thinking, though, is that sunken human habitats exist all around the world. Floods and climate change are reoccurring historical phenomena. They happen. While there is some basis to the Mediterranean drying out millions of years ago and a slight recession during the Ice Age, its water levels during human inhabitation of the planet have never dipped or risen dramatically enough to have destroyed a whole city. So that rules out the Mediterranean for the most part. And if we're to discount all the far-fetched theories placing Atlantis in Antarctica or the Americas, the last place worth mentioning is North Africa. This time, the advancement of computer technology met ancient Greek philosophy when a German computer programmer named Michael Huebner took a more mathematical approach to the Atlantis mystery. He took apart Plato's dialogue and distilled it into 51 clues or facts about Atlantis, which he then fed through a geographical algorithm. The program produced a somewhat viable location, appropriately enough near a range called the Atlas Mountains. Hidden in the middle of three rings of dried out riverbeds was a mound surrounded by ancient ruins made out of red, white, and black rocks, consistent with Plato's description of the island's signature masonry. The region was a known hotbed of seismic activity, and being relatively near the coast, it's possible a tidal wave or tsunami may have swept through the area at one point in the past. This region also ticks up all the boxes concerning local flora and fauna, and other aspects that line up with the Atlantis legend. However, no serious archaeological efforts have been undertaken at this site, and detractors point out that it's fairly up in the mountains, too far for any flood or oceanic disaster to have much an effect on that area. The next one is more of a stretch, but it's cool so I thought it was worth mentioning. Further down the coast from Morocco in Mauritania sits a 25-mile circular rock outcropping known as the Rashat structure. It's situated on the Adrar Plateau in the Sahara Desert and is composed of exposed sedimentary rock in layers that form concentric rings. One could imagine flowing canals between these rock masses, with a city situated in the middle. But while primitive archaeological tools have been unearthed near this landmass, there is no evidence for permanently inhabited structures or any indication that people live there long term, pretty much debunking any substantial theories presenting the Eye of Africa as a candidate for Plato's Atlantis. It's also, you know, in the middle of the desert. Turning back to Greece for a moment, there is one last place worth exploring, the civilization of the Minoans, a people from the Greek island of Crete who spawned such legends as the Labyrinth of the Minotaur. There is a good reason they're associated with a bull-headed monster, because the Minoans were known to venerate and worship cattle. If that sounds familiar, then recall that Plato's dialogue specified that the people of Atlantis held a similar religion. The Minoans existed in the Bronze Age from 2600 to 1450 BC, though they lasted until 1100 BC. They are widely recognized as one of the first technologically advanced civilizations in all of Europe due to their multi-storied architecture, which would have been seen as highly advanced at that point in history. And even more advanced was their knowledge of plumbing, which, though not exactly on the same level as the flying machines of Helena Blavatsky's vision of Atlantis, is certainly no small feat to sneeze at. And when I say plumbing, I don't just mean crude wastewater trenches or something like that, but the intake of potable or clean water, the ability to get rid of sewage, a storm sewage canal for overflow, and the first functioning flushable toilet. 
also indoor heating systems. Now, granted, this would seem all rather primitive by our modern standards, but back then, a technology on this level would have been enough to impress an educated man like Plato. The Minoans were known merchants and supposedly had a naval fleet at their disposal, but unlike the Atlanteans, there is no mention of war in the frescoes and artwork left behind the civilization. There is no evidence of a powerful army or their conquest of other lands in a time when war prowess was something you generally talked loudly about. And this is what kind of throws a wrench into the theory that this was Atlantis. As for its size, Crete, the central island of the Minoan people, was not exactly continental. But if we go with the theory that Plato's measurements were the result of a mistranslation, then the corrected math does check out. Specific attention is given to the Minoan settlement at Akrotiri, of which there has been significant archaeological excavation. This settlement was also seemingly abandoned overnight, which brings us to one of the main reasons behind the Minoan decline, a massive, terrifying catastrophe appropriately known as the Minoan eruption. Archaeological and geological evidence shows us that, around the year 1600 BC, the island of Thera, or modern-day Santorini, literally exploded. Many of the islands in that region were the result of volcanic activity from a centralized caldera, or in layman's terms, the volcano-y part, where the magma comes out. Over the course of hundreds of years, the volcano would erupt and then the caldera would fill back in with seawater, cooling the magma and repeating in a cyclical process. This resulted in the creation of a series of concentric island landmasses, with Santorini, or Thera, right in the middle. In other words, something that sounds a whole lot like Plato's description of Atlantis as alternating circles of water and land with a central landmass smack dab in the center. The eruption was likely sudden and devastating. It is widely cited as one of the most explosive volcanic events in human history, comparable only to the Tambora eruption responsible for the 1815 year without a summer. The violent eruption buried, and therefore preserved, the settlement of Akrotori, and likely spawned tsunamis and earthquakes that were just as destructive. Though the event occurred before the written word, historians believe it was referenced in the tempest engravings in Egypt. Its effects were noticed as far away as China, where a sudden period of field crops and unusual sky and weather patterns was passed down as an oral tradition and eventually recorded in the bamboo annals of Chinese history. While Akrotori was entirely entombed, the effect on Crete, the hub of the Minoan world, is still as of yet unknown. It likely affected population growth and destroyed crops, though a concrete answer on whether or not it effectively brought down all of Minoan civilization is still up for debate. The Minoans were eventually conquered by the Mycenaeans, a civilization preceding Hellenic Greece of which Athens was a major city. This proved some dominance on the side of Athens, but not as the result of fending off an invasion. While Plato does not mention Atlantis being destroyed by a volcano specifically, the earthquakes and flood as a result of a tsunami are consistent with what happened to the Minoans. Out of all the hypothesized historic locations of Atlantis, Crete and Akrotori tick the most boxes matching Plato's descriptions. In his time, there was not much contact between Crete and mainland Greece, so it would have been easy for a well-learned scholar like Plato to not be fully aware of the island's ancient history.
They say we know more about the universe than we do our oceans, and the statistics don't lie. Only 15 to 20% of our planet's oceans have been explored, and so it's easy to see why so many fantastic legends and stories have emerged from the near-infinite abyss. It's also easy to see why so many people get excited when something unusual is discovered underneath the depths. Atlantis is the perfect legend, full of wonder and mystery, and it makes a fine template for anything under the ocean that might be awaiting discovery. In 2015, a seafloor mapping survey turned up something anomalous on the seafloor of the Pantelleria Vecchia Bank, which sits in the channel between Sicily and Tunisia. It was a megalith, carved out of limestone laying sideways on the ground and around 40 feet in length. It was apparent from its engravings that it was carved and therefore modified by human hands, humans who lived almost 10,000 years ago. It is known that the sea level in that part of the world was significantly lower back then. But it's only recent that archaeologists and historians have begun to suspect that the capabilities of hunter-gatherer cultures were more advanced than we'd thought, in part to discoveries such as this, as well as the ruins uncovered at Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, the subject for another episode. It says nothing about the achievements of the Atlanteans, but it also means that 10,000 years ago, human inhabitants were building things, and some of those civilizations were erased from history due to climate. Plato may have been aware of one of these examples, something that, without written language or survival records, was lost to anything but oral history at that point. When it comes to structures like Yonaguni or the Bimini Road, unfortunately, wishful thinking may have clouded better judgment. But we can't blame people for having hope and imagination. While the Yonaguni Monument might look kind of like a carved out pyramid, and the Bimini Road a planned wall or street structure in the shallows of the Bahamas, both are, more than likely, rare geological arrangements. Natural erosions, as well as seismic activity, have a tendency to make very sharp lines and angles in rocks, which, at first glance, gives them the appearance of being deliberately cut or modified by humans. And we know that continents can't literally sink into the ocean, thanks to our knowledge of plate tectonics. It takes thousands and thousands of years for continental alteration. They don't just disappear into the water overnight. And this is why it's so important to acknowledge science, even when we do get excited about myths, legends, and so forth. There's probably no lost city waiting to be discovered at the bottom of the ocean, but it's more than likely that there are other ancient ruins from civilizations thus far unknown waiting to be unearthed. Not only do these bygone ruins serve as historical reference points, but as warnings as well. Nothing really stands forever, and in the face of a turbulent planet, even the greatest of empires can fall. Relic is written and narrated by me, Maxwell. If you like this episode and want to flood my reviews with good ratings, you can do so in Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream Relic. We also have a Patreon that has exclusive episodes, including Tales from the Reliquary, which looks at weirder lost treasures that can't fit a full episode. Connect with me on Twitter at LostTreasurePod and email me at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. Next time... Relic is going to be taking a little bit of a break while I work on a new project, so keep an eye on my Twitter and look forward to announcements soon. The adventure continues. <laughs>